Good morning. I would like to invite all of the children to join me in the front as we begin worship. Good morning and welcome to worship this morning, all of you children and all of you in the congregation today. My name is Emily and I'm one of the ministers here on staff at Calvary. If you are visiting with us, we welcome you to worship with us. We are glad that you are here and we would love to get to know you better. In the pew in front of you, you will find a welcome card. We ask that you fill that out and put it in the offering plate later in the service so that we can reach out to you and tell you more about our community and so that we can get to know you better. God has gathered all of us here in this place of worship. This is the day that the Lord has made. We come to celebrate this day and to remember God's presence with us and provisions for us. And today we have a parent and child dedication. And I am so excited to talk with you about that and to be a part of that today. Have you ever seen one of those before? I know that many of you have been a part of one when you were just a little baby. Your parents brought you to church and you were dedicated in front of the entire congregation. During that service, you were celebrated and recognized as being wonderfully made. And you are a gift from God. We thanked God for you and for your parents and we prayed for you. And your parents made promises that day to raise you in the Christian faith and to teach you the Bible and to show you how to live in relationship with God. They promised to be an example for you. And the church community also said some things to you and your parents that day. They promised to come alongside you and support you and love you and encourage you and teach you. You may not remember this day, but I know that your parents do and your church community does too. So your parents made these promises and the community made these promises and they've been trying to keep those promises ever since. The congregation has helped you to grow in your faith and to teach you about Jesus. What are some ways that they have done that? What about your Sunday school teachers? Your Sunday school teachers teach you and love you. They get to know you and encourage you in your faith. Many of them have made commitments to pray for you every day by name. Hannah. Me? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Our Sunday school teachers listen to all of the stories that we have to tell them. They're good listeners. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Help us learn about Jesus. There's so many people in this congregation that love you and support you and want to see you grow in Christ. Mm -hmm. They help us to follow the right path. You're right. They help us to be more like Jesus, the entire congregation. Mm -hmm. Help us to believe. Mm -hmm. The church promises to care for us and to teach us. And I want you to remember these promises and remember all of the ways that you are loved and cared for by the church. And in just a little bit, we're going to have another parent and child dedication this morning. And you will get to hear the words that the congregation speaks and that the parents speak. And I want you to listen really carefully to those commitments and vows that they're making. And remember them and remember that those have been also made for you. The church cares so, so much about you. So let's join in prayer together. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for the ways that you have shown us love and care by our community. Thank you for all of the people who are caring for us and teaching us, our parents, our teachers, and the entire congregation. Thank you for their presence in our lives. We praise you for the community of faith who helps children walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father, we are here this morning to worship you. We ask that you open our hearts to you. Wherever and however we have distanced ourselves from you, wake us up to the splendor of majesty of who you are. Forbid that we would do anything less than worship you in spirit and in truth this Sunday. Help us to remember that in coming before you, we are coming before the great king, the creator of the universe. You are the one who sent his one and only son to become one of us, die for us, overcome sin in the grave for us, and give us new hearts that we might be restored in your image. Startle us, O God, with your truth and open our hearts and our minds to your wondrous love. Speak your word to us. Silence in us any voice but your own, and be with us now as we turn our attention, our minds, and our hearts to you. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Calvary, I would like to introduce you to four very special families today. Here we have Naomi Sophia Bermicki and her parents, Monica and Jorge. Naomi was born on July 3rd, 2016. Her name is a mix of her Latina and Jewish heritage. She loves rolling over, taking warm baths, and practicing how to use her two front teeth by biting almost anything. She also enjoys looking into mirrors to check her cute reflection and drinking milk all day, every day. <laughs> Maxton Shiloh Herridge and his parents, Blake and Mallory. Maxton was born on January 1st, 2016. His first name was made up by his parents and his middle name, Shiloh, was given to him with the hope that he will be a presence of peace and rest to all he encounters in his life. <laughs> Max loves bath time, especially splashing his mommy. He also loves to grab glasses and earrings and paper <laughs> and to growl at people until they pay attention to him. <laughs> he enjoys riding in the grocery cart and dancing to music. William Jude Fields Holder and his parents, Megan and Wayne. Jude was born on November 29th, 2014. He is the fifth William in a row in his family. And when his parents met him for the first time, he looked like a Jude. <laughs> Fields is his mom's maiden name. He loves to play outside and read books. He also loves to help in any way that he can. And his favorite thing in the world is throwing things away in the trash can. <laughs> Even things that probably shouldn't be thrown away. <laughs> Jude is nurturing and he loves babies that are smaller than him. Graham Michael Limley and his parents Megan and Chris. Graham was born on August 17, 2016. Graham's name is shared with family, including his dad, whose middle name is Graham and he is named in memory of his dad's great-grandfather, A.B. Graham. Michael, his middle name, is his mom's father's name. Graham's favorite things are hearing a familiar voice, bath time, also known as splash time, read alouds before bed, and having long conversations with that person he sees in the mirror, because that guy is particularly responsive. <laughs> Today we celebrate the lives of Naomi, Max, Jude, and Graham. We come together to rejoice and give thanks to God, the giver of all life. These children are a gift from God, and it is God who formed them and knit them together. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. Together we celebrate the importance of community in the life of a child and parent. We name and verbalize our responsibilities to one another, we share our commitment to come alongside these children and families to support, love, and care for them. We remember the significance of children to Jesus. Jesus welcomes children, lays hands on them, and blesses them. Jesus chooses to be present to children. And he says that the kingdom of God belongs to children such as these. Naomi, Max, Jude, and Graham are a sign of the kingdom of God. Each of these children reminds us that God welcomes us without condition, showing us love and grace and care. They are reminders to us that we are all beloved children of God. May we each be reminded of Jesus' love when we look at one of these children. Today we commit ourselves to covenants together with these children and their families. To learn from, give to, and receive from them by God's grace. Now Mary Alice will lead us in expressing these covenants to one another. Parents, we ask you to covenant with us. In dedicating your children to the Lord, will you teach your children by word and by example to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves? Will you pray for your children and with your children and entrust them to God's care? And by daily seeking to follow Christ, will you surround your children with God's love that they may be nurtured and strengthened in their faith by God's grace. 
Calvary, we ask you to covenant with us as well. Your love, care, encouragement, and example are just as important as their faithfulness in keeping their promise. So will you covenant to be the family of God in this place for these parents and their children, supporting them through prayer, encouragement, and your faithful presence in their lives? And now we would like to introduce these children to their faith family. We would also like to present you with a letter for you to read with your child on the day that he or she accepts Christ and follows Christ by example in baptism. This letter will remind each child of this day of dedication in which you and the church made a commitment to come alongside them in their faith journey. The letter will also remind them that they are loved and cherished by you, their parents, by the church, and by God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for these children and for their parents. We praise you for the gifts that they are. We pray that Naomi, Max, Jude, and Graham would know your love and your presence with them always. Give them your peace and protect them in times of trouble. Strengthen them and surround them with your love. And comfort them in times of need. We pray that you would continually guide them to know and love you more. May they be surrounded by loving family and friends who teach them and model for them your gracious ways. May they each grow in Christ and live fully alive in God all of the days of their life. We pray your abundant blessings upon them and their parents today. In Jesus' name, amen.
A reading from the book of Psalms. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him victory. The Lord has made known his victory. He has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and with the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the God, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. A reading from the prophet Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, so that the treasure of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with its splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God.
I have it on good authority that after such a great congregational hymn, uh, it would be appropriate for all God's people to say, Arriba, actually. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, and all God's people say. Lord, we're so thankful for this family of faith and the ways in which our time together connects us to things that are so far beyond us to the powerful experience of watching parents entrust their children not only to you but to your community. We're grateful. And for a moment where we join with Christians around the world to remember that we're one in Christ, thank you, God, for the way this helps us envision your world beyond all the challenges that we know in these days. God, you desire truth in the inward being. So teach us now with wisdom in the secret heart. Through Christ we pray. Amen. It would be my guess that uh, none of you have ever actually curled up by the fire with the book of Haggai. Uh, you just don't tend to turn there for a little devotional reading in part because Unless you're like a world-class Bible drill champion, you're going to have a tough time finding it, right? So it's only two chapters long, and you do one of those Old Testament thumb-throughs, and there's a good chance you're going to miss it. Miss it. It's tucked there, always on one page between Zephaniah and Zechariah in the minor prophet section. I was trying to get to it again this morning, and mine was literally stuck in between those two books. It's, a, it's classic in a, sort of the minor prophet way. Short in length, has a fairly focused message, and most importantly, has a really funny name, uh, Haggai. You know, we've done, we've recovered biblical names, and, and I just don't know why no one has gone to Haggai, but maybe we'll see that more often in the years to come. He was a pastor, and he was a prophet to a remnant. You know what a remnant is? It's leftovers. If you make a garment and you have some material left over, it's a remnant. If you're building a building or any kind of project and some boards lying around afterwards, well, those are the remnants. It's a fancy word for scraps. So Haggai pastored the scraps, these leftovers from 70 years in exile. And after 70 years, scraps is about all you have left. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Because the whole exile thing is designed to weaken a group of people so there's just not going to be any trouble to anyone anymore. And Israel had gone through that. There's not much left but this little remnant. Eventually they made it home and home wasn't what it once was. But I'm thinking they're happy to be there and hopeful and they are a scrappy lot. So they began to do what they can. They're trying to fix up the place, a little urban renewal going on in Jerusalem, mostly 
and the housing sector. This is from chapter 1. They're, they're rebuilding their, their houses. It's sort of an ancient fixer-upper kind of fad, right? So everybody's into the remodeling mode during these years. And God is watching. This goes on for a while. God is watching all this. And finally, he uh, says to Haggai, you know my house, the temple? My house remains in ruins, and you all are busy with your own houses. Everybody's remodeling, you know. They're taking out home improvement loans. They're putting a lot of shiplap here and there and really cool lighting and new hardwood floors. And the temple, Solomon's temple, for crying out loud, that was the center of everything, this grand place, looks like an earthquake just hit it still. It had been destroyed, and Babylon conquered Judah, and they had completely torn it apart, looted it, hauled off all the good stuff, as you can imagine. This, this place that had been the centerpiece of their collective identity, and it's still in ruins, this place where they were to gather to worship right? So Haggai lets them know that God does not appreciate this. So they began planning, as you would, the new temple. And the text says that they got all fired up, right? This is in chapter 1. The spirits of the governor and the high priest and of the entire remnant were stirred up, and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. So this is a good thing, right? to get excited about having a place to worship again. And they got stirred up and motivated. They're building God's house. The governor's going to be in on this, the high priest, Haggai, the prophet, and everyone's on board. They're going to rebuild the temple, Solomon's temple. They're, they're just a remnant, but you, you can picture them. They have a lot of pride, and, and there's some enthusiasm now, and they really can't wait. They're going to rebuild the temple. So they're getting organized, probably elected a committee, don't you think? Got them one of those capital funds programs going, probably had one of those thermometer deals out front where you can show how much has, has been given, adopted one of those really catchy, alliterative slogans like remnants rebuilding for righteousness or touching up the temple today or return of the temple. That one sounds, you know, gripping. So it wasn't long before they're drawn up plans and they've broken ground and people are working in shifts literally round the clock. Everyone's into it and the entire remnant's involved. Probably imagining maybe that Temple 2 is going to be even better than Temple 1. And while they're working, their conversations, of course, naturally return to the original temple. Very, very few of them would have ever seen it or could have remembered it. But they had descriptions from Scripture and they had heard stories, don't you imagine? grandparents and parents telling about about this place that was so beautiful it was so amazing and astounding that you wouldn't want to leave it was that grand one one day there was like a thousand everywhere else you just sort of stepped out of time there were these huge huge stones for a foundation and tall ceilings and and symbols everywhere and gold overlay and altars and and that really special holy of holies and they talked as they worked, visualizing the old temple and using that to prepare their own work. They, they were just a remnant, but if their ancestors could do it, well, by God, they could do it too. And they begin to picture that day, that one day, and they're going to walk in there and they're going to worship in their own temple. And most of all, they pictured Yahweh's Shekinah glory filling it again. Well, after about a month of working day and night, just a month, God told Haggai to call the people together and to speak to them. Ask them, God says, ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Anyone? Well, most of them, of course, hadn't seen it. Maybe they just in their mind's eye now they could see it. How does it look now to you? So those are the prophetic questions that Haggai asked them. So they all take a step back a bit and survey what they've done so far. I can tell you that as a home improvement type guy, I mean, this is what you do. It's kind of fun, right? You work for a while, and then you step back and you see how it's coming. And if it's looking good, you congratulate yourself and you have a glass of tea and you enjoy the progress. If you don't like what you see, sometimes you speak in unknown tongues. At least that's what people have told me. 
happens. So they all step back. And they remember in their mind's eye all that Solomon took that temple was, that, that giant foundation and those huge doors and that ornamentation everywhere. And there is this kind of collective sinking sadness that sweeps across that group as they remember what was and realize it's not going to be again. It's one of those heart sinking into the shoes kind of moments. And they've been working so hard and they've been so fired up and they're just did much to look at. They got a few stones cut and they're trying to gather some things up and they've cut some cedar trees and they're strapping them together for walls and someone donated an old table that, you know, that might work for an altar. And look at it comes the next word. Look at it. Haggai asks the hardest question of all then. Does it not seem to you like nothing? long pause it's clear to everyone gathered there that compared to what was this temple is going to be like nothing and there's no attempt here in our story to candy coat it I mean Haggai's not going to say well but let's look on the bright side I mean at least it's better than worshiping back in Babylon hey remnants can't be choosy you know it's just this moment of painful honesty about the way things really are. This is real. It, it, it seems like nothing, doesn't it? And I have to tell you, at, at first glance for me, when I, when I look at this, it seems sort of cruel to me. Like God set them up. He, he tells them to go to building knowing that they're poor and they're worn out. There are not too many of them. Economic recovery takes a long time from exile and they're kind of almost like a developing nation. They didn't have the resources to build the temple. And God knew that. The first one, remember, took years back when Solomon was king of the Money Mountain. And, and these folks, these remnants, they're building probably with remnants. There's a two before here, there, and a salvage door. And someone would find an old window casing and give it to the architect. And they'd try to work it in. And here God is asking them. To, to make a comparison after a month or so, no less. Honestly, folks, folks, what do you think of your new place? My new house, does, does it not seem like nothing to you? No response from the people. They're just there staring at their collective inadequacy. And, and might we just wonder for a minute, given how obvious this seems that God set them up a bit, that maybe that might be exactly what Yahweh had in mind? Is this one of those paradoxical interventions that God does along the way and that counselors these days talk about all the time? Because now the people of God, these people, they're in a different day. And you might think of it as a different stage. And you might even think of it as sort of the second half of life, as some might call it. And in that day, there are different spiritual agendas that the divine seems to have for us. And seeing our nothingness, it, it might just be right at the heart of it all for Israel and for any child of God. Seeing what is real, where there aren't any more illusions now. You know, the first stages of the journey, lots of ways, they're all about building. I mean, we build an identity with our families and with the kind of things we do. And we live in picket-fenced realities. And we take possession of things promised, promised lands. And, and we kind of carve out our place in the world, don't we? And we construct and we institutionalize and we kind of look up we set our eyes up there kind of on the top of the heap and it's kind of a resume driven picket fence dreaming ego enhancing time and all sorts of natural ways really human stuff and perhaps holy too I mean, human thriving and accomplishment and passion and creativity seems to be in our divine dna and it can lead and does lead to some really really good stuff but it's not the end of the journey it's not the aim of the journey. It's not all there is 
we might even think of it as just step one. And Haggai, is, is, is God saying perhaps, beautiful temple? Been there, done that. This is another time, and it's another realm, and there's more. And success that's so important in the early years Maybe it's a problem in the later years. What's helpful early on may be a problem later on. You know, the, the ego, the, that social identity we all have seems so dependent on the temples of our lives. Do you, you know what I mean? You following the temples? The winning teams? <laughs> the promotions? The degrees and diplomas hanging on our office walls, the first place ribbons hanging in our kids' rooms, the growing churches we joined along the way. It's not bad stuff, it's good stuff, just not all there is. Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest that many of you know of, he's fond of saying, says often in his talks, success has nothing to teach you after 30. It's not a bad thing having a successful temple. It's just that we get really attached to it and we get really centered in it. And Israel's story really is our story and my story and your story. Their stages are my stages and your stages. And God's work with them seems to be through the biblical narrative. It just seems to me that God is moving them beyond the gifts they had once received of national identity and strength of temple to something that is beyond that and transcend that. It is time to transcend what they had been transfixed by for so very long. So God's taking them beyond the brick and the mortar and the gold and the forms, beyond the cathedral that they thought somehow could house the divine. There's probably a few scholars in the room who could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that God's Shekinah glory never filled the second temple, even though it seems to be promised in this text. So I, I'm wondering, is Haggai, as he delivers these words, is his hand here saying, God promises, don't worry, God promises, I know this feels like nothing, but God promises to fill this temple. I mean, this, this new temple like the old, you know, it, it was going to be an important place, and it was, but it never possessed that sort of shimmering reality that had moved for them from the mountain and into the tabernacle and into the ark and into the temple. God's presence was never limited there, and we know that looking back. But that place was such a gift. And it's just possible that what is a gift in one stage of life might become the idol in the next. So they rebuild the temple. The temple is good. But then they step back and they also see that the temple is nothing. And nothingness, seeing it, may just be the next and necessary gift for all of us. The French mystic Simone Bay said... It is grace that forms the void inside of us. And it is grace alone that will fill that void. Is it possible that God's presence in all the gifts that comes our way, that it's there only to, to teach us really that God's grace is present everywhere, even a house that looks like nothing to us? It's going to be a really hard moment for them when they realize they're never going to return to that great place. But God says to them, don't be afraid. God says, don't be afraid. Kind of like this, this now is our path together. And God's glory, God's somethingness will be there too. And it's going to always be there for us as well. Remember. Remember that barn in Bethlehem bearing that poor homeless infant? It really does look like nothing, doesn't it? And listen to that itinerant teacher saying, Turn the other cheek, bless to the poor, lose your life, 
kind of sounds like nothing to me. Step back and see these pointing to little children and to the least of these. And, and, and they seem like nothing, at least at first glance. And then take a good step back and take a good long look at that one who is dying on a Roman cross. Does it not seem like nothing to you? It did to them. This can't be of God. And then, of course, there's a tomb. And there's nothing in it, in, in it either. I am with you, declares the Lord. My spirit remains with you. And I will fill this house. And this house. This nothingness with my glory. And in that, I will grant my peace. God, may it be that we're willing to take the next step and the next step always into the next bit of glory that you want to show us. For all the things that have created faith in us and stability in our lives and in our inner being, we're grateful. But no, we can't be transfixed by them forever. So give us, Lord, the wisdom and the courage and the faith that we might transcend those limitations and be transformed. Through Christ we pray. Amen. If you're here today and want to visit with a minister or pray with someone about your journey of faith and the commitments you might be considering in these days, our minister's will be at the back to receive you and greet you and pray with you as we stand and sing.
today and for the following two Sundays, in addition to our regular offering, we will be taking up a special offering to support the global missions of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And there are designated envelopes in your pews if you would like to give toward this special offering. Let us pray. God, this morning we lift up our brothers and sisters serving through the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And specifically, we pray for Angel and Jason Pittman and their sons Isaac and Lucas, former Calvary members serving in Miami, Florida. And we pray for Mike and Brooke Thrift Quinlan and their children Truett and Paisley, former Calvary members serving in Southeast Asia. God, give them the courage, the energy, and the love to continue to live out their callings. And may they be surrounded by your strength and your care today. We pray for those who serve closer to home here at Calvary, for those who teach English classes each week, and the students who sacrifice so much in their commitment to learn English, those who serve in Meals on Wheels and faithfully take meals to our seniors each week, those who read with children at West Avenue Elementary, and those who coordinate bags for children and families who are hungry, those we met at the villages last week that our relationships might continue to grow in the days ahead those who tend to our garden and those in our community who use the garden to care for their families, those who teach and nurture our children, those who guide and love our youth and college students. We pause to give thanks for the people who serve in this place, in our community and around our world week after week. God, we realize that none of these ministries would be possible without you. And without giving up of what you have so generously given to us, giving of our time, our energy, and our resources out of the abundance of what you have given. And so may we be people who faithfully and generously give. We ask these things in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.